0: From Kickstarter, this is just the beginning. In this episode, science fiction gets real. Have you ever had a moment when you realize that we live in the future? You know, you pull out your phone to answer a video call and you're like, whoa, this would have seemed like science fiction 20 years ago.
1: And a lot of times, the best parts of science fiction stories aren't the plot twists or flashy spaceships. It's all the boring stuff, all the amazing things that people in the fictional future consider totally normal. A matter replicator? Of course, how else are you going to make a cup of coffee?
0: And that gap between science fiction and our everyday lives is what we're going to be hearing about in this episode. The creators we're about to hear from both use science fiction as a creative tool, but in very different ways. One, an inventor who is obsessed with holograms, dreams of making the real world a little bit more like science fiction.
2: I just want it to be as casual to interact with a virtual world as sitting around a campfire or like listening to a radio program with your friends.
0: And the other, a comics author, is using science fiction to explore the realities of being black in America.
2: I admit that I've creeped
3: myself out with how I've been writing a fiction but then keep having reality sort of, like, validate (laughs) what I'm thinking.
1: A lot of things that are real today started out as science fiction. The submarine was inspired by Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. The communicators in Star Trek are among the things that inspired mobile phones. And while a lot of kids who saw Back to the Future 2 in 1989 left the theater dreaming of hoverboards, flying cars, or time machines, 10-year-old Sean Frayne was captivated by a different image.
2: For me, the obsession started after I saw the shark gobble up Marty. The future.
1: Michael J. Fox's character Marty McFly, who's just been dropped into a sci-fi version of 2015, ducks and screams in terror as an enormous holographic shark lunges at him from a billboard advertising Jaws 19. shark still looks fake. From that moment on, Sean was on a quest. What if the shark didn't look fake? What if he could make a hologram that felt real? And what if he could be the one to make it?
2: I got so obsessed with it, my parents got me a book called The Holography Handbook for Christmas one year. This is this classic book for any hologram nerds out there. And my dad and I built a little holographic studio in my room. It was right at the foot of my bed in high school. I think it was the only one on the block. And my laser was so low power. I had to do exposures that were like an hour long. So you're like sitting quietly in the dark, exposing these glass slides. And at the end of it, I had a holographic capture. My first one was actually a little pewter Mickey mouse and it was great, but it didn't move and it wasn't alive.
1: And was it something that like your friends knew you were into or was it kind of like a secret
2: passion? It wasn't a secret passion. It's just that nobody cared. (laughs) So I didn't have that to share with most people.
1: Sean did find people who shared his obsession when he went to MIT to study physics. He even got to take a course on holography with Stephen Benton, one of the pioneers of the field. And while this was exciting... Sean was disappointed to learn that the kinds of things he envisioned didn't exist
2: yet. I thought somewhere in the labs of MIT, there would be this like living, moving holographic display that we were promised in all of these movies. But it just wasn't there. It didn't exist. Everything was a static, basically laser photograph. I realized, unfortunately, no one had achieved the dream of the hologram. You know, folks who end up being in the field for 30 or 40 years forget that Yeah, that's why we got into it. We want to have the living, three-dimensional world on my desk. Because there was nothing at the time hidden behind some locked secret door, I just dropped it. I forgot about it for, you know, almost 10 years. For a lot of us, abandoning a lifelong dream would be
1: devastating. But Sean is the kind of person who had a backup dream to pursue as well. He was excited about using technology to protect the environment, so after college, he started an invention lab to come up with new ways of reducing waste and generating energy more efficiently.
2: We worked on a lot of stuff in the clean tech field, a little machine that would make solar panels, all sorts of experimental wind energy systems. We made self-inflating bubble wrap uh, surprisingly useful. But while his attention was focused elsewhere,
1: the world was catching up with Sean's dream of technology that could blur the line between the virtual and the real desktop 3D printers were letting people turn digital models into actual physical objects, and virtual reality headsets like the Oculus Rift let people step into computer-generated worlds. When Facebook acquired Oculus in 2014, it suggested that this kind of tech might be ready for a more mainstream audience. You know, beyond teenagers doing physics experiments in their bedrooms.
2: It's like, oh, people are making 3D stuff for Oculus now. That's cool. Maybe it's time for the hologram. That's when we started Looking Glass Factory.
1: Looking Glass Factory is the company in Brooklyn, New York, that Sean founded with his friend Alex Hornstein. And with their latest creation, they've come pretty close to realizing Sean's dream of the hologram. Last summer, I got to see a demo of the new holographic display that they were about to launch.
2: Yeah, the great challenge of describing a hologram over radio. (laughs) This is the Looking Glass holographic display. It's about the size of a really, really thick book, like a dictionary. It's a block of what looks like glass. It's actually made of lucite. Four million points of lights are projected through that block that generate this three-dimensional scene. So with this demo that I'm running right now is a frog and really feels alive inside the looking glass on this table.
1: It's almost like you have a little terrarium with a frog in it. Can we see something else?
2: Yeah, so uh, now in the looking glass is a monk that's doing martial arts. We've taken volumetric video of this real person and sort of a way to think of it, pulled from virtual space into the looking glass in real space. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, and it
1: just looks like we have a little tiny person sitting on the desktop.
2: And even further, you can bring that content to life. You can like interact with this guy. And those demos just scratch the surface of what's possible with the looking glass. They've
1: connected spatial sensors to it to allow you to intuitively interact with holograms by moving your hands. And maybe most importantly, it's a platform for sharing content.
2: So new things you create could be viewed in looking
1: glasses all over the
2: world. The goal is really to make a system that lets groups of people without anything on their head see and interact with a virtual world. We just want it to be as casual to interact with advanced 3D content as sitting around a campfire.
1: But for Sean and the team at Looking Glass Factory, holograms aren't just about creating a magical experience. When you step up to the door of their office, you're greeted with a message.
2: No dystopian futures allowed is scrawled to the door to our office in Greenpoint.
1: Sean thinks we're at something of a crossroads right now. He's afraid that the current path of virtual reality could lead to a future where we're constantly wearing headsets.
2: Which to me is a very dystopian future. I don't want my kids to be only interacting with each other and with things that they're creating in a headset-only future. This won't be viewed as a socially significant move now, But 10 years from now, I think we'll look back, hopefully, and see that there is this possible future in which everyone was geared up for 16 hours a day, and one or two companies really owned the access to the high-speed ports of your brain, which is your eyes.
1: If this just sounds like a kind of confusing sci-fi plotline to you, here's what Sean is saying. He thinks virtual 3D content is going to become central to the way that we get information. Imagine everything you currently do on your phone or the internet happening in a virtual space. And right now, the only way you can experience that content is by wearing goggles that are produced by a handful of huge tech companies. Remember, Facebook owns one of the main virtual reality platforms, Oculus. So for Sean, inventing a new holographic display goes beyond just making a cool gadget. It's about creating a way to interact with a virtual world that's just around the corner without having to give Facebook, Google, or Microsoft
2: control over our eyes. If things go well, that'll be viewed as a possible but not implemented future, because there'll be things like the looking glass. For Sean and Alex,
1: virtual reality provided a clear example of what a holographic display shouldn't be.
2: But the question of what it should be was still wide open. We didn't even know if it was possible. But we wanted to show, like, if it's possible, this is what it could look like. So they did what great inventors have always
1: done. They faked it. Or to be more generous, they started by creating a proof of concept, a basic prototype that lets you experience some aspect of an invention without having to solve all the technical challenges first. They called these prototypes volumetric prints. They look a lot like the holographic displays Sean imagined. They just couldn't move yet. When you hold one in your hand, it just looks like a physical object encased in a glass cube a little person, or Sean's go-to demo,
2: a frog. And I would take these to bars and schools, and I would say, you know, one day this frog is gonna move. People imagine their memories captured inside, so that was really neat to see a lot of completely non-technical folks be able to look at this one technology of the volumetric print and imagine an entirely different class of technology in a split second.
1: And from there, They went on to create hundreds of prototypes with varying degrees of success. Sean recalls an early attempt that was not quite ready for prime time.
2: This system I was hauling around the West Coast to pitch to folks a few years ago. It's the size of a refrigerator, and then it would generate a little sugar cube size volumetric scene of my daughter Jane and my son Ben running around. And I thought this thing was amazing. Um, No one else was entertained by um, that. I actually remember these two guys in this room in Disney literally laughing me out of the room. These days,
1: their demos at high-profile entertainment companies go pretty differently.
2: We just showed this at Pixar a few weeks ago. Everyone was really excited about making new content in the Looking Glass. You know, they're the top 3D creators in the world. For them to see how their work could live in a new way in this medium was really special. Now, Almost everybody that sees the looking glass sees the full dream and they can see how like, yeah, this is going to be in homes and like schools and hospitals very, very, very soon. We have this list actually of 100 practical things you can do with the looking glass. None of us know what's going to grab the strongest first. There's a huge number of applications that are not so distant. An architect can now have her model live in the looking glass. She could present it to a client instead of having to make a paper model or a 3D prints of that home. The thing that I've always dreamed about is something like holoskype. Seeing somebody in the looking glass as if they're really there. I travel a lot and have a lot of family spread all over the world. That's the thing that would be most special for me. Like eventually maybe you'll be able to have some tactile feedback so that you can see somebody inside the Looking Glass, like my daughter Jane running around and like, I touch her hand and give her a high five and I'll like feel it on my hand.
1: When Sean and Alex started working on holographic displays in 2014, they figured it would take 10 years to create what they had in mind. The launch of Looking Glass means they're ahead of schedule, but they're still figuring out how to take holograms from an idea that just sounds like science fiction to something that people understand and see as part of
2: everyday life. You have to have people that create this bubble of belief around this whole team that can be like tenuously maintained despite all of the criticism that happens in the chase for something like the hologram, which I think is a lot like the chase for flight. You just don't know if it's possible. I originally spoke with Sean in the summer of 2018,
1: right before Looking Glass launched on Kickstarter. Now it's out there, and it's in the hands of thousands of hologram hackers, as he likes to call them. So I caught up with him over a video chat, a regular non-holographic one, to hear about what people have been doing with it and what it's been like for him to see it out in the
2: world. It's completely crazy. I mean, I've worked on this for like 15 years. There's never been a community of folks that had a system to make content for and share with each other in holographic form. And now that that exists, I mean, all of us in the team are just, we're just in constant shock when we look at Twitter in the morning and just see what has been created. There's this guy, for instance, Bob Burrow on the West Coast, who's got a piece of Mars living on his desk. There was a 3D scan of of a rock on Mars and he downloaded it and then pulled it into the looking glass. And it's like it's there, like (laughs) sitting on his desk. Um, I'm thinking of this as like telearchaeology where a robot was able to send something that was almost as good as the atoms of the rock itself and then transported onto not only his desk, but then he posted about it on Twitter and a guy in Japan, he then a few minutes later had that same rock from Mars sitting on his desk in Japan. I don't know, it's crazy that this is actually happening. It's just insane.
1: And you've seen a lot of interesting stuff happening in Japan, right? Sure.
2: Um, I mean, the world's first looking glass club of hundreds of people started on its own in Tokyo. We found out about it a couple weeks before their first event. And this is just folks who had gotten early access to the looking glass through the Kickstarter, sharing what they had made. I ended up going. I actually went to their first club meeting. There were dozens of looking glasses kicking around this room. And it was amazing. I mean it's what all of us in the team in Looking Glass Factory over the last five years have been dreaming and hoping would happen.
1: That's Sean Frain, lifelong hologram nerd and founder of Looking Glass Factory. Follow them on Twitter at LKG Glass to see some of the amazing things people have been creating with their holographic display. We heard music in this story from Data Howler.
0: In our last story, we heard how Sean Frayne drew inspiration from science fiction to create something that he hopes will be part of our future. But for Kwanzaa Sajifo, the author of the comic Black, science fiction provides a way to tell a story that addresses a contemporary problem with a deep history. I sat down with him to talk about how his experience as a Black man in the comics industry led him to create a superhero comic that doesn't pull punches in its depiction of the racism Black people face in America. Camilla Zang, Kickstarter's comics outreach lead, also joined the conversation. Kwanzaa, I'm so excited you're here. Okay, I need to admit something. I've watched X-Men, and I really enjoyed it and stuff, but I wouldn't consider myself a comics fan. But after reading Black, I was like, bruh. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. Awesome. (laughs) You wrote a comic called Black. Just straight up, (laughs) Black, all caps. (laughs) Went there. Give us a synopsis. Sure.
3: So the whole premise behind Black is, what if only Black people had superpowers? And it was an idea that I came up with 13 years ago. The lead character in Black, Kareem, he gets shot and killed by the police. But then, you know, superhero story, he comes back to life, finds out he has superpowers. And he's part of this small percentage of Black people that have had powers for, like, centuries. But, of course, it's kept secret. Basically, any time a Black person with powers pops up, agents of the United States pop them back down. And Kareem actually has to make a choice in the story. It's just like, do I want to become like, a, you know, rebel, revolutionary fighting against the man?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Or is there another path? Even though it's a fantastical story, I'm like, if black people had superpowers, how would this shape up? Like how would this net out?
0: Yeah,
3: It's something that, you know, I felt was very relevant to the black experience and how something like that could come about.
0: Because even though it's fantastical, it touches on very, real issues like the prison industrial complex it's talking about you know microaggressions different you know black ideologies
3: some people when they first heard the idea they were like oh this is so contemporary this is so of now and i'm like oh no black people have been getting shot for a long ass time i don't know where you've been you know you mentioned like you know the different ideologies that was something else that was important in writing black as well Is like not having that monolith because often when you see black characters in comic books through the white lens you know they're there to represent everything about the culture you know they're there to be the black person and you know i grew up reading all of these characters who are these analogies for like the black experience like the x-men and just kind of like why do we need a veneer of like very attractive white people who in all honesty gene gray who's discriminating against you Uh Yeah, Like, nobody's pulling Wolverine over because he got the nice whip. That's just not (laughs) happening. And if they did, it's Wolverine. Let's not try and use metaphor. It's like, we know how we discriminate in real life. Yeah. (laughs) So what if only black people had superpowers? Oh, you mad? Why?
0: That is totally totally the tone of black. Like, oh, you mad? And it's just so unapologetic. Because even with me, I'm unapologetically black. But even when I read it, I was like, oh. You know, like, I wasn't turned off. But I was just, I guess, shocked. At how it wasn't hidden behind a veneer. We're so used to a veneer and metaphor, and you were like, "Fuck the metaphor. Let's really get into it," Mm -hmm. which I appreciated.
3: As we were working on it, I thought, like, you know, if we're really gonna like cut down to the bone, if we're gonna scrape the veneer off of like this kind of story, you know, we need to just be upfront with what it is.
0: What was the moment when you first connected with a comic, and what was the moment when you realized that this is what you wanted to do with your life?
3: I liked comic books from when I was very, very young, like six or seven. I started out with, like, the Peanuts and then, like, Archie and then graduated to, like, the more advanced stuff. It was something that I found a lot of comfort in because when you are kind of, like, nerdy and bookish and geeky and then all of a sudden there's, like, this little, like, secret enclave that you can go to called the comic book store, (laughs) you know, where it's just, like, there's nothing but that. My mom knew what she had on her hands. I was bookish, I was an introvert, I was an only child. So she was just kind of like, how do I engage this little like super nerd that I have spawned? You know, when I started drawing my first comic books, like she saved them to the point of embarrassment. Like people would come over and like, no, I'm 20, nobody wants to see that. What was the comic
0: you you need to describe it?
3: The comic book was about uh, the planets. So I had anthropomorphized the planets into these little like almost Pac-Man characters. That's how into it I was when I was a kid. I think when I decided that it's what I wanted to do was a little later when I finally, you know, paid attention and kind of read the indicia and the credits. That's when I realized it's like this is a job. And so I think it was like probably like in late high school when uh, this uh, publisher Milestone Media emerged. And this was like the first publisher that was doing characters of color as like part of their ethos.
0: What era was all, like what year?
3: So I think Milestone came out probably in like 93?
0: Okay, so we're talking early 90s when we're first starting to see some black superheroes. Yeah,
3: so prior to that, like most of the comic book characters that anyone are familiar with, it's no surprise, like they're mostly white. You can look at every Marvel movie up until Black Panther. So Milestone was like the eye opener and especially because they were characters that looked like me because I think like any kid, you're not paying attention all the time to your fantasy. Like you identify with the characters that you identify with because they're cool. Mm-hmm. You know, they can do all this like super stuff. Yeah. And it wasn't until those characters showed up and I was like, wait a minute, there weren't any brown people. Yes. I did not notice that. Like, uh-huh. And then I just became enamored of it and um actually ended up calling into like milestone studios and they interviewed me. I mean, this was insane. Like I picked up the phone and just like with my little cracked voice. is like, hi, oh, I'm the new God. hotness, and I think you guys will, will be really lucky to have me be an artist or a writer for there." And they actually let me come in. I was like, Oh, what? my God. How old were you? So I was maybe 17, and they let me show my portfolio to their editor-in-chief, Dwayne McDuffie, who's a legend in comic books. Look him up. He had, like, a huge impact on mm-hmm. uh, the field. Yeah, and um, he's
0: an African-American man.
3: Yeah, and... Uh, you know, he flipped through my portfolio, looked at some of my ideas, and then, you know, very graciously told me I was not ready for the big leagues. Um, but what was really cool is he asked me, like, you know, what do you want to do in comic books? Why do you want to do this? And basically he gave me the green book of navigating the comic book industry because he's like, mm-hmm. yeah, hey, here's, here's how you go about it. And it's like, as you can see, all of the brown people are here and not over there, mm-hmm, so you'll mm-hmm. have to navigate this as a person of color in a certain way. It was life-changing. I wouldn't have a career in comic books at all if it wasn't for him. Kids need to see it to be it, Mm -hmm. you know? And seeing somebody with agency in the industry who looked like me, who came from similar backgrounds, probably had similar experiences, be able to do something as big and game-changing as Milestone was just infinitely inspiring.
0: So your first job in comics was at Marvel. What was it like going from that place of being like, this is what I want in life, to actually being there and seeing what it was?
3: The thing that I noticed there was still that lack of color. And that was something that I realized impacted the content. There were these representations of you know, like African-Americans, women, queer folk like, that just were off because they were coming from like this very limited perspective. It's like, oh, is that how your one black friend talks? Also not having anyone in the room who could challenge that was one of the big key things. Like When you're kind of mired and entrenched in this one way of doing things for like so long, you do get blinders. I mean, obviously there's, you know, biases and prejudices and stuff out there, but what I really realized is like, oh, it's just because we're not here. So how do we get in here in order to change these perspectives? Because that's what you actually
2: need.
0: I had a similar track to you. Like instead of an internship at Marvel, I did an internship at DC. Only girl in the room. Also only junior in the room. And won't name names, but legit an editor called another artist a pussy. So it's safe to say, so the comics industry is like super white, super male dominated, probably super straight. Yeah,
3: Yeah. but I think think it's been changing, you know, quite a bit in, I'd probably say like the last five years. I was so happy recently with like Spider-Man, they finally gave that boy like a decent fade. I was like, (laughs) who has been drawing this boy's hair? Little things like that are important to yeah. represent culture accurately. And it seems superficial, but it's not.
0: I want to hear more about your upbringing.
3: I grew up around like nothing but strong Southern women. Like my mm. family's from like North Carolina. Mm. Like
0: I could tell in the way you wrote the character, especially the older black woman character in black. So like, I'm black. I'm Southern. Half my family's from like Arkansas. And so I was like, this is so spot on.
3: The fact that it resonated with you is like a real and tangible part of your experience is exactly what I wanted to put into comics that were about Black people, because those things are what's missing.
0: And it seems like Black resonated with a lot of people because the Kickstarter campaign was so successful.
3: I didn't know that it would resonate with people the way that it did. And we ended up with like over $90,000 at the end of the campaign. Wow. And it was really validating because yeah. that's the point of it. You know, it's something that had I brought to a publisher, they probably would have like hemmed and hawed or like not really gotten it. And mm-hmm. so like, well, why would we do that? They might
4: have just said no flat out. It's
0: like people being like, oh, there's no money in that. But once you actually have the opportunity to put out a POC centered story, so many people come flocking. So, Black is being turned into a movie? Yeah,
3: it was really crazy. We got a movie offer the day that we launched a Kickstarter.
0: So everyone was sliding in your DMs.
3: <laughs> My DMs that week, so when we launched it, I did not have a manager, I did not have a lawyer, we did not have a publisher, and I got all of that in a week. I had that worry that like we would go to like a major studio and they wouldn't get it. You know, We ended up at Studio 8, and I've read like a few scripts and they've all made me completely jealous. I like my book, but like the stuff that I've read has made me want to like set that on fire and rewrite it. Really? Just because, you know, when you have other people like kind of take your ideas and like rework them. And what has
0: that been like?
3: It's been really cool because like, I'm not kidding. Like I've thought like, can I make like a super cut of my own book where I like, I go back and rewrite Black, but like a whole nother version. <laughs> yeah. Cause like there's so many things that in hindsight I would revisit. Like I could have put so many more women in this story and I just didn't. And I didn't because I'm a
2: dude. I was
0: going to say, going back to what we were talking about, it's not even always malintent. You just need more people in the room of yeah. different experiences to write the thing. I don't know how much we can talk about, like, your overall plan for this trilogy.
3: Yeah, so I mean, white is the second part of the trilogy. And it's set three years later after the events in Black. Spoiler, you should have gotten the book. I'm going to tell you what happens at the end of Black. Like The world does find out that only Black people have superpowers, and understandably start tripping. White kind of expands that into the context of like, all right, well, we asked you, what if only black people had superpowers? So now the question is, how would America react (laughs) if only black people had superpowers? Because it's very much a culture that is entrenched and founded in racism. People don't want to acknowledge that, but that's very much the foundation of this country. It was founded in slavery. We're writing a fiction, but it's a fiction that's definitely related to reality. And the reality is that, you know, we live in a country that's struggling with culture and with its history and with, like, the reality of who we are. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason that I called the second book White is because I really wanted to address that context.
0: So there's a main character in White named Theodore Mann. Tell me more about him.
3: So Theodore Mann is basically, like, the patriarch of the Mann family that has founded its entire family stock on exploiting empowered black people. So they've known about this, like pretty much the entire history of it. Mm -hmm. And have actively like worked to keep it a secret. They've worked with like the US government to sort of like just keep it off the public radar for profit and gain, but also, you know, for social order. And Theodore Mann has now become president of the United States.
0: Wait, Theodore Mann becomes the president and this is in white? Mm This is how I react to when I find out like who was eliminated on RuPaul's Drag Race. (laughs) Wait.
3: Believe it or not, despite like current events was always my intention. I admit that I've creeped myself out with how I've been telling this story in a way that I felt like has just reflected history. Right. Uh, You know, in the black experience and like, you know, a little bit of like fictional like imagineering and stuff like that, but then keep having reality sort of like validate (laughs) what I'm thinking.
0: So, like, in white, cat's out of the bag. We all know that black people have superpowers. People are flipping the fuck out. It's all about confronting whiteness and blackness and this discomfort that you're talking about. And when you dropped black, kind of similar things happened where people were really uncomfortable. People were angry. People were freaking out. Mm -hmm. People are calling you a racist.
3: People coming out and saying, like, well, you're racist because this, this comic book isn't diverse. It's like, this comic book's called Black. (laughs) <laughs> and the premise is, what if only black people had superpowers? It's just like, yeah, but that's what makes it racist. Dude, Grant Morrison's 2000 run of Justice League had no black people in it. You were comfortable. But the minute I actually, like, poke a hole in that and say, like, what if only black people have superpowers? You're just like, oh, huh? it's really funny that, like, having superpowers suddenly makes you question social constructs. Mm. of years ago when we had first launched a book a young man he had come over and he was showing me and my co-creator Tim his portfolio of artwork and he was like I didn't know that I wasn't present in comic books until I saw your book and that was exactly the same feeling that I have a milestone and like to have someone say the exact same thing that I felt back then to me that's you know part of why i do this because it was again important for me to create these narratives that reflect this experience this culture this perspective i just want to create this playground for everyone to like tell these stories and like make some people uncomfortable or make them happy i like think both
0: That was comics writer Kwanzaa Osadjufo, speaking with Camilla Zhang, Kickstarter's comics outreach lead, and with me. His campaign for the second book in his trilogy, White, will be live on Kickstarter until March 31st, 2019.
4: Discovery of self, discovery of health, discovery of wealth, discovery of self, discovery of wealth, discovery of health discovery of self. i brushed it off let it go let it flow i brushed it off let it flow let it roll. i brushed it off let it go let it roll. let the universe know that i seek control I brushed
1: it off. thanks for joining us for this episode of just the beginning the show is produced by zakia gibbons michael garofalo and me nick yolman Elise malouk is kickstarter's editorial director
0: visit us at podcast.kickstarter.com and tell us what you think of the show leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts
1: our theme music is by Balloon. And the music you're hearing now is the new single from Sassy Black called Discovery of Self. Find both artists on Bandcamp.
0: Until next time, I'm
4: Zakia Gibbons.
1: I'm Nick Yolman, and this is just the beginning.
4: Discovery of health. Discovery of self. Discovery of health. Discovery of wealth. Discovery of self. Discovery of health. Discovery of wealth. Discovery of self.